And so on a on like this core individual basis, once you get your basic needs met, right? Hydration, sleep, food, exercise, really becoming clear about what's yours and what's not yours is really important because then you know what to push back on and, and what ultimately then can create more space for more of you. And burnout really is, I think it's, it's a space where we become so disconnected from our, ourselves or our true selves that we can't run that way anymore. Like we can't operate um, as that false self any longer. And so right next to boundaries, I would, I would also say, and then start doing some real inner work around what makes me show up this way? What drives me to like run that hard or that fast? Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Allie Schultz. Allie is a co-founder, coach, and facilitator at Reboot a coaching company that provides comprehensive offerings to serve leadership development for individuals, teams, and entire organizations. If you're a tech entrepreneur or venture capitalist, there's a good chance you've heard of Reboot. They've worked with companies like Etsy, Lyft, and Twilio, and venture capitalists from firms such as Union Square Ventures, Excel, and The Foundry Group. Allie and her two co-founders started Reboot in 2014 to foster a revolution around work. That work doesn't have to destroy us. Work can be the way that we achieve our fullest self. Prior to co-founding Reboot, Allie worked for more than a dozen years in business as an operator managing projects, teams, and human resources, and developing brands. With a master's degree in religious studies from the University of Colorado at Boulder, Allie has studied transformational NLP at NLP Marin, completed the facilitator program at the Center for Collaborative Awareness, and is a certified Equus Experience Facilitator in Equine Facilitated Coaching. Allie seamlessly and deftly weaves together her business acumen with the innate wisdom of the body, the philosophies of the world's wisdom traditions, and the way of the horse to help clients find their voice so that they can find themselves. In this interview, we discuss her early exploration into wisdom and spirituality, her corporate world experience, what it means to be a coach, equine-facilitated coaching, and all things reboot. And so, without further ado, my interview with Allie Schultz. So let's start this off at the, at the beginning. Um, like, where did you grow up and like, what was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I grew up in um, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, also home of uh, Bon Iver. So I think Eau Claire is now becoming much more famous um, than it was, you know, when I was a youngin. But um, mm-hmm. Wisconsin or Eau Claire is a really kind of small town, 60,000 people. Um, fairly non-diverse, I would say. Um, but it also just felt really safe in, 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 in some really basic ways. And, um, it was a good place to grow up. Um, yeah, really, really green, nice summers, great rivers for canoeing. 
um, great trails for skiing and snowshoeing and uh, plenty of winter to enjoy all of that. So right. um, my upbringing was, what would I say, I, pretty normal. I would say maybe like middle class, you know, small town Wisconsin upbringing, mm-hmm. um, nothing super fancy or glossy. Um, my dad worked in the heavy machinery um, industry selling earth movers and stuff. And my mom was a stay at home mom. And um, she also did a lot of like interior decorating and remodeling and stuff like that for various people, you know, once the kids were old enough and she could um, kind of get some time away. Um, and I think the best part of my childhood was um, when I was 11, I got my first horse. And so um, that was quite a big, a big moment for me. And uh, by the time I was um, 18, I think I had a barn full of like seven horses, you know, over the course. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, And so it was like, that was my thing, um, you know, all throughout the latter, I'd say the latter part of my childhood you know, the, the middle school, um, high school years, the important years, I think. So, so yeah. Interesting. So did you, did you grow up on, like on a farm to, in order to have like all those horses? Um, we, uh, my family or my parents moved, um, to the County line when I was 11 and, um, and so we were able, we had two horses at that point and they were boarded at various farms nearby. And so we were able to have them at home. And um, of course, once you have land and you have, you know, extra stalls in the barn, of course, they end up being filled. And so that's what happened over the, <laughs> over the course of the years. But um, that's really where I poured like a lot of my energy and time. And um, um, yeah, it was really, it felt like an idyllic childhood in many ways. Um, so I, I, I look back on that with, uh, a lot of fond memories. Yeah. Interesting. And what, what do you think it was that drew you to horses in the first place when, when you were young? I'm sure it's probably like, maybe the, the draw has changed as he's gotten older, but like, what, what do you think it was that initially drew you to them, um, when you were, when you were younger? Um, I don't even know if I could have articulated it really well back then, but I remember, I remember in second grade going out, um, over spring break to visit my aunt who lived in New Mexico and she took my cousin and I out on, you know, one of those like dude ranch trail rides. So it's just kind of like the slow moving trail horses and, and um, all three of us were, were out there as my cousin, my aunt and I. And, um, and when we came back that evening, uh, I was the only one that wasn't like saddle sore, you know, like I didn't, I wasn't whining about, oh man, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I've just yeah. been riding a horse. And there was some part of me that was just like, yes, I'm a natural at this. And, um, and I, I mean, I remember that at the time. And um, I think what it was, looking back, um, it was probably like just this really somatic, um, kind of 
harmony that I just felt in my body and, and being out in nature in that way. And, mm -hmm. um, and to be able to like have that with another being, right? Like with another, I mean, granted it was a Dude Ranch trail horse, but you know, um, there's still some aliveness in there, regardless of how many times they've done that trail. But um, it felt like magic, you know, yeah. to be able to, I don't know, be carried away like that. Um, mm. I don't know, so, so many things, so many layers, you know, I could look back and add stories to it. But I remember in the moment, I was just really proud that I was not saddle sore and therefore this was my thing. I was a natural. Yeah. <laughs> it's a natural equestrian. Yeah. No, no, I think that's, that's cool. And I, th I think it's just, you know, similar to, you know, kids, they gravitate towards other things that they're more naturally, I guess, talented at, whether it's sports or like playing music or, or art or, or et cetera. So uh, sounds like for you, it just happened to be horses or yeah. Equestrian. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a little unfortunate for my parents because it was probably the most expensive hobby I could have <laughs> picked, but, but I'm grateful they supported it. So, yeah. 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 So, um, as you, as you get older, um, like when, like when did your exploration into wisdom, like the soul, spirituality, et cetera, really, really begin? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, it, I remember when I was 13, actually, I, um, I, I don't know what was going, I mean, life felt fairly okay. Um, but I had this moment of, um, I don't know, it was like my head poked through some, some layer or fabric of the universe. And I just felt like this deeper connection to like, uh, I don't know, my life, you know, uh, the world around me. Um, and, uh, that, that connection, like it, I remember it as if it was like a mystical moment, you know, and if I was to zoom back in and, and look at that young girl now oh, with what I know now, I, I, I'm not sure what I would see in terms of what she was experiencing, but, um, it was, it just felt like this great awakening of, um, connection to like self, but also greater connection to, you know, the world around me. And, um, and then all throughout, uh, middle school and high school, I was, uh, it was, I was like the self-help junkie. I mean, I feel like it's too young to be calling myself that, but that, that yeah. was the department of the bookstore I would hang out in. Um, and those were the magazines I would pull off the shelf and study hall from the library, you know, like self or healing or wellness or, um, whatever those titles were back then, you know, this would have been in like, I don't know, between like 96 and, you know, 99. So, um, yeah, it, it really, it, it was, it was like this awareness in this way of, of kind of feeling the world that, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it infiltrated like my language and, and how I spoke about things and, um, and how I was and, um, my preferences, you know, what I would be drawn to, um, and how I was with others, which was odd because <laughs> I remember reading like, um, 
Tuesdays with Maury and thinking it was like the most amazing book ever. And then I bought it for like all of my family members for Christmas thinking, huh. Oh my God, you got to read this book. It's going to change your life. And I was like, what was I doing? You know, <laughs> I remember at one point, like my cousin Jonathan was getting um, harassed by his, my other cousins, his older sisters. And I was like, Jonathan, you just got to be nonviolent like Gandhi. And he looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, <laughs> I was like, you can't engage, you can't engage. Just like, you know, um, you know, just take a deep breath and realize it's them. It's not you. And, and he did. And he was, you know, it like totally worked for him. And I remember that. And I was like, God, this is so weird. <laughs> so, um, I mean, like, you know, just super young, but I'm also like, I, I mean, imagine a, a kid like this, like in a family where it's like beyond normal, like so normal, you know, small town Wisconsin. And I was like such a black sheep. Um, mm. So it was all kind of a weird experience for me because I felt like, you know, that bizarre kid that the stork dropped off in the wrong place. Um, and yet maybe it was the perfect place, you know, obviously, but yeah. Um, but that, ex that exploration into soul and all of that really continued um, throughout, I think, uh, you know, well, obviously until now, but um, it really led me. Um, I just kept following it and then I would find it, you know, in academia. And then uh, eventually I was like, how do I, you know, I, I kind of found this in, in my work, you know, and, and it never came with, like there was never a direct path. There was never like some carved out career path or some career on a shelf where I was like, yes, this is where I'm going. Um, but it was, you know, the, the, the literature and, and the ways of thinking and the material and the uh, content that I was just most excited about and felt most resonant with. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You, you really started uh, a lot younger than I, I anticipated. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, did, um, did it also make you, like with your peers, did it, you maybe feel like maybe like an outcast in, in some way compared to other students? I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, just to, just to really get clear on this, um, I wasn't like walking around in like, you know, um, white robes and saris or anything when I was 13. <laughs> I, I was still quite the normal kid with, um, you know, uh, just horses in the backyard, but um, I, I did, I have always gravitated towards um, like older, older folks. And so like when I would go visit my friends when I was younger, I would actually end up hanging out with their parents and talking to their parents you know? <laughs> when they would be making us breakfast and we'd have slumber parties, you know, and, and then their parents would make breakfast and I'd be like talking to them and then I'd hang out with them for the rest of the morning and help them clean up the kitchen. And, um, and so a lot of my friends, even uh, after we had moved to the country and, you know, they were older. Um, the woman who taught me how to ride, for example, she lived like a couple miles away with her husband and, um, you know, there were, um, there were kind of a whole group of us in the neighborhood that um, hung out. And, and I, I mean, that was, those are my, my peers in air quotes, right? I mean, certainly not right. my age, but um, those are the folks that, um, you know, that I would have conversations with. Not that they would even be, um, you know, 
conversing, you know, with the same content, but, um, you know, it was, for some reason, it was just harder to, um, well, not always harder, you know, I guess in thinking back in high school, I had study hall, last hour study hall free. And I remember um, we were able to leave if we had that final hour open. And, um, and my sister was four years below me and she was at the same school. And so I had to, you know, I, I was the one that drove. So I was the carpooler or the, you know, the commuter, the driver for the family. And so I had to wait to pick her up after school. And so I would actually just go for walks with a friend of mine um, or a couple, you know, I might rotate through a few friends during that study hall hour. Um, and we'd just walk around the neighborhood, you know, near the high school. And, um, you know, those walks were always um, the different kind of conversations than the typical high schooler would have, right? They were about, you know, um, what really excited us and what brought us alive and um, maybe what, how we were really feeling about things or, you know, big dreams or visions we would have. Like that level yeah. of conversation versus like, I don't know, um, some of the more tense, socially um, strained stuff that might happen, you know during like high school years. So, um, right. so I won't, I won't say that I was completely socially inept with my age group, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I think I would say that, uh, a walk with Allie or, uh, hanging out with Allie was like, had a different quality than hanging out with other people. Yeah. And it was just different for folks. It was just different, but it was, it was just kind of who I was. It's what I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah more like an older, older soul. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah. So how were you able to, I guess, take this kind of passion for a non-traditional, I guess, subject and, and go to like, like college, let's say like, like where'd you go to college and what'd you study? Yeah. Awesome question. So I went to school at, um, I stayed close to home. Um, I didn't really have any grand desires to leave at that point. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and I actually went in thinking, oh, I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to do this science thing. I'm going to become a doctor and then I'm just going to have this horse hobby on the side. That was, that was kind of what I went in with. And um, I ended up taking um, one of the first classes that I had was in religious studies and it was, a, it was like a smaller kind of special class offering. So it was a smaller group of students. So the discussion was a little bit deeper and it was introduction to world religions. And um, I had gone to a Catholic high school and they had actually offered, you know, a world religions course at that high school, which I thought was fascinating. And looking back on it now, it definitely came through a lens, you know, the, that course in high school was delivered through like the, the Catholic lens which I found actually really off-putting, but college, of course, there's, there's, there was freedom from that. And so actually being in the religious, religious studies department um, just felt like home to me in many ways. And so this class that I took um, was taught by Richard DeGrude, who ended up passing um, uh, just a couple years after, I believe. And um, so it was really special actually to be able to 
be with him because it was like he was one of the elders in the department. And um, one of the texts that we worked with was, um, I believe, like ecology and spirituality um, or the sacred earth. I mean, I'm forgetting the title, but it was basically a survey of um, world religions, but as, as they were, were tied to kind of the environment in an environmental way of, of viewing things. Um, and, and I really stumbled across this whole idea of deep ecology in that class. And then I also met um, the mystics, so like Meister Eckhart. And, um, and as soon as I read those pieces, I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is amazing. Like this articulates like what I've been feeling in me Mm -hmm. for so long and so it was it was kind of like meeting old friends in those textbooks and it's always to me it's always so awesome to be feeling so many things and not exactly know how to articulate them but trying to articulate them and then re like finding a piece of work or a chunk of content that articulates it like so beautifully and it's like oh my god this is it <laughs> this is what i've been <laughs> this is what i feel this is what i've been trying to say for so long and so that was like that chunk of content, that class really, um, I felt so met, you know, um, intellectually and even in my heart, which is not something I don't think you can say a lot in college, but I would hope a lot of students maybe find that. But, but to be able to resonate that deeply, it was really, really great. Um, and eventually, of course, um, you know, I did science courses. Um, but by the time I got to organic chemistry, I was like, that's it. I'm not even going to pretend I want to be a doctor. <laughs> like, you know, I was, I was very much into preventative health and, um, I still very much believe in that, of course. And I feel like I do it in many other ways. I think coaching is a great, like precursor, you know, or, um, it's very much in service of that preventative health idea. Um, but I remember, right in high school being interviewed for the newspaper and they were like, what are you into? And it's like, oh, I'm all about preventative health. I want to be a doctor. Um, but yeah, by the time organic chemistry hit, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not <laughs> even going to pretend I can do this. <laughs> I couldn't survive that class without my lab partner. So Anne Madrinsky, thank you so much. Um, I think I got like a C plus, but uh, yeah. And after that, I, um, I ended up going to Montana State University for a few years and there was a professor there, Linda Sexton, who was like pivotal. Um, one of those like, Jerry calls them asteroids in his book, but um, she was one of those like pivotal people in my life who again, like I just felt so met and um, resonated so deeply with. And I took all of her courses for two years while I was there. And Montana State University had this tiny, tiny religious studies department. And um, it was like her and maybe one other one other instructor and it was merged with like history and anthropology and um, anyway, but Linda was fantastic. And uh, I took everything I could with her and then eventually just looked at all of the college credits I had and was like, how do I just wrap this up in four years? Like I don't need to create a new degree and stretch this out. And so I ended up going back home to university of Wisconsin, Eau Claire and um, graduating with a religious studies master's degree and a biology minor. So I didn't, I didn't lose all those science credits, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. But at one point in, at Montana state, I almost studied like alpine ecology and almost studied lichens. So that would have been another really interesting track, but um, I don't know quite how that would have served coaching. 
but uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Why did you transfer yeah. to Montana State? You know, it wasn't really a transfer. It was um, this really cool program that um, my college at home offered, and they called it um, what did they call it? Not national. It was national student exchange instead of international student exchange because I had applied to um, go to London because I had met um, a friend in my first semester there. And I was like, oh yeah, I can go to London and hang out with Carrie and study there for a year. And um, I was too young, so they didn't let me into that program. I kind of got a head start on my college credits, but um, they wanted to let um, later year, more senior students um, get in there. So I was like, okay, great. I'm gonna go to Montana then. And we just hang out in the mountains and study there. And Montana felt like, um, felt like going home in many ways. Um, I always joke that my placenta is buried in Montana. Because huh. um, it just, back then anyway, I know it's changed a lot since I've been there, but um, it was a really magical place. And uh, I really loved it. It resonated very, very much for me at that age. Yeah. Interesting. So you get your master's. Um, where does where does life and, and work take you after school? Um, yeah. So I came up to Boulder to get my master's degree. Um, and I uh, wrapped that up. And then I was like, oh, crap, I need a job. And um, in the like, as I was writing my thesis, I started doing a lot of freelance writing uh, locally and for a few um, kind of publications that were distributed nationally and globally. And, uh, and I also started kind of dabbling with web design and getting into the internet a little bit. And so I found a job working for what I, I mean, looking back on it, it was a startup. Um, and they did all kinds of, it was like a full service, um, organization. Um, they were doing web design well before WordPress was as robust as it is now. We were doing email marketing well before there was anything called MailChimp or constant contact and, um, SEO, all of that. And so um, I started working there as a project manager and uh, I was working with um, kind of a motley crew of really cool people. And we were a really small team at the time, like six to eight folks, pretty much all contractors. Um, it was a kind of informal, loose organization, but we were dealing with some really big clients, um, big biotech companies, um, big fortune, you know, 100 companies, um, so really, really fascinating. Um, doing e-commerce, big e-commerce sites, like well before all the platforms that exist now um, were around. And I look at what's around now and I'm like, oh my God, our jobs would have been so, so much easier. <laughs> but you know, we were working with offshore development teams to help us because we were such a small crew and um, just had a few in-house designers and, and I, I wouldn't say I learned how to code. I think the most, um, I don't know, advanced thing I learned was to do how to do an include file in Dreamweaver. So I, I was a great project manager because I had a good eye for design and content and the feel of things. Um, I knew how to get shit done. 
and um, I knew like what needed to be done and how things need to be, needed to work. So um, yeah. that's, that's how I got into tech, I would say. And um, looking back, yeah, I know, really, really <laughs> interesting. And then from there, um, I joined another, um, another development company that was a startup. Um, I thought they were, you know, so much cooler though, because they were in downtown Boulder versus, you know, an office space on like the outskirts of. Um, but, but there I was kind of sitting in the, I don't know that I had a formal title, but it was kind of like director of operations. And so I was kind of pulled in as the CEO was really um, stepping up and scaling um, herself and unloading a bunch of stuff. And I was like, yeah, give it to me. I can organize the shit out of this and um, keep things moving and tend to the culture and move the company to a new office. And so it was a really great uh, experience there. And uh, my job encompassed um, so much, like from um, accounting to facilities to um, HR um, and all of that. So it was a same environment, similar environment, but completely different role. And, um, and so while I was there, I was also working with the leadership team to bring in coaching and training for the organization um, as I was seeing it and as they were seeing it and as the organization was asking for it. And so all of that was kind of going on while, um, and that's when I met Jerry actually. So I met Jerry, he did a talk at um, CU Boulder at the Leeds, I think the Leeds or the, the law, the law building. One of the uh, professors there um, put together this Silicon Flatirons um, series of talks and um, Jerry was invited and the company that I worked at had sponsored it. And so we all got, you know, free tickets and I went with a few of my friends um, who are also coaches and uh, facilitators in the area. And I heard Jerry speak and I was like, oh my God, like this is everything I'm really aligned with and trying to bring into this organization that I'm at. Like I gotta, I gotta meet this guy. And so we ended up going on a hike and, um, you know, kind of conversing more later over a meal. And um, he was like, yeah, you know, I want to do these boot camps. And I was like, done. You found your girl. You can't like consider it done. You know, I know exactly what, what you want to do. And, and we pulled it off. And that's when the boot camp started that year. So, huh. What, yeah. uh, what year was that? It was 2013. Okay. And, yeah. um, made like stepping, going back a bit when, yeah. like when you're at the startup, and then you wanted to bring in like coaching and, and training, um, like around what, what time period like was that? Um, I was there for, I think it was like 2011. I got okay. there for 2013. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a little bit before the coaching and, and leadership training was as in vogue as it is today. Um, Maybe you can tell me if that's, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're right. I feel like, um, I feel like all I hear right now is coaching, 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 but that's also the industry I'm in. So I'm kind of like, um, like right. my head is deep in that hole every day. <laughs> so, um, I don't really like prairie dog up and look around and be like, what else are people talking about? But, um, 
I don't, I don't know that there were as many coaches on the streets back then. Yeah. And I may not have been looking too hard. They were likely there. As far as I know, anything like Reboot wasn't there, at least in the tech space. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Boulder at one, on one hand is, is large and on another hand isn't. So I, my view is, of course, probably got some blinders on there. So, yeah. Um, and so was it while, like, why did, why do you get into coaching? Like, so you were in the, you were like a product in the project management type role at the startup. Like what sparks your interest to become a coach? And like, did you do some certification program or studying while you were also working at the startup? Um, I didn't while I was there. I, um, I actually really started getting into thinking about coaching um, at that first startup that I landed in after graduate school. And um, so while I was taking that project management role, um, I was still freelance writing on the side and kind of doing, you know, super basic websites on the side for friends and close acquaintances. And what I really began to understand, um, especially in helping clients who had these big ideas and who knew they needed tech to support them and they needed, you know, the, the image and the words and all of that to align and match like what they were trying to put out into the world. A, I realized not everybody has that, that sensibility to know like, what that needs to be, what, how to create that. And two, not everybody exactly knew what they were in terms of like, who am I and what is this work and that, that, that I'm doing or what is this company and how do I talk about it? And, and I, I really started to see like so much of like, kind of just like humanity come up in these moments when I was working with clients. And it's one thing to help someone tease out a vision or words or articulate who they are or what their company is as a writer, you know, and then how do you match images to that, you know, and, and nobody comes in with the full set and says, here, just build me a website. They're like, I need a website. And so I really like, I found coaching to be an intricate part of um, even that project management role. And one of the things that I was doing on the side at that point, because I was also an artist in my spare time was I would do these, um, I'd call them manifest sessions, but it was basically um, a uh, vision board. And so I would collect all these magazines from friends um, and a friend of mine, let me use her art studio um, downtown and um, I, people would sign up and they would spend um, three hours in an art studio with a pile of magazines. And they would, uh, I, the only instruction, instruction I gave them was just go through and just rip out whatever draws your attention or gives you, just gives you a, like good feeling or like a, Oh my God, yes. Like that kind of feeling. And so people would collect, you know, these images and then they would arrange them on a thing and then they'd look at it and, you know, things would happen for them. I of course had no idea what was happening for them and it wasn't mine to direct or decide or, 
um, pick apart or instruct even. It was just, it's like I gave people space to sit with themselves um, creatively, you know, and to sit with maybe whatever was in their heart or um, to tune in or maybe get a sense maybe of some longing that was really stirring for them. And so those were fun. Those were really fun. Uh, so I really enjoyed doing that with folks on the side. And of course, you know, I, I brought all the creative sensibility into um, the role um, at this, this other startup I was at where I was, you know, really working to bring in coaches and facilitators. And at the time, I think I too, I remember this actually, I had experienced coaching for myself. That's actually what allowed me to jump from that project management job into this other company. And um, okay. it was pivotal for me. I mean, my first coach is um, now a friend and was a colleague. Um, she worked with Reboot for a bit. And um, it was a game changer. I mean, she changed my life. Another one of those like pivotal people in my life. And so having experienced what coaching can do for a, a person, like I, I, um, I knew that I needed to, to bring it into the organization. Um, because not only is there self-awareness and self-work that needs to happen, but there's also this relational stuff that happens in the office. And if you don't have the self stuff sorted out, the relational stuff gets really weird. And that was really the opportunity that that organization had in front of it. So that's what, that's what I was trying to bring in, bring in those doors. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually experienced coaching for the first time uh, last year. Um, I've been pretty kind of hesitant as to, I like I've sort of heard coaching, like life coaching and all of that, but was a little skeptical at first. And then I finally, one of my friends who went through this kind of like coaching, like experience, finally dragged me in. Um, and by the end <laughs> of it, I was uh, completely blown away as to how tr transformational experience it can be. Um, yeah. in the span of like two or three days, which is what, um, the experience I did was, um, mm -hmm. kind of breaking down these mental barriers that I had and, um, helping me see into myself a little more clearly, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I, yeah, it's, uh, coaching is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, I see it happen over and over again with our clients. And, um, that's one of the reasons why we started reboot. Yeah. And maybe, uh, maybe just for people listening, like who, who aren't as familiar, who aren't familiar with coaching, like how would you describe the role of a coach? That is such a great question. So a coach ultimately makes you better, <laughs> right? You have like, you know, little league coaches, you have, um, art coaches, you have voice coaches, you have you know, coaches for everything, right? they ultimately make you better and how they make you better is they help you see yourself and what you're doing. And they're able to say, Hey, do you see what you're doing there? And you can be like, Oh my God. Yeah. That moment. And then they can help you parse out you know, what's happening on the inside in that moment. And how is that serving, you know, your goal or your, where you want to be. Um, and, and they work with you to help, um, identify kind of what keeps you from getting to those, those, those places that you feel you might want to go. Um, a lot of the times, you know, people come in with a really clear idea of point A 
you're like, I'm here, I'm stuck. Um, I don't know how to get out of this or I'm here, I'm stuck. I'm sick of my own bullshit. <laughs> I need something different. And um, some people come in and they're like, I want to be over here. I need to be at point B. And some people come in and they're like, I just know that I'm stuck and I don't um, exactly know how to get out of this. And so we help them define like, well, what would you like? You know, what is that point B for you? And as soon as that is identified, um, it, to me, coaching is also being with a person um, and helping them unpack what stops them from getting to point B from where they are. And for it's different for everyone, you know? Um, sometimes you have to look back behind you and look at childhood and be like, okay, how did all of this formation actually create where I am now? And how is it getting in the way and preventing me from actually moving forward where I wanna be? Um, and so, unlike, or, or kind of similar to having a personal trainer, right? Like a coach is also helping you like uh, exercise new muscles, um, helping you gain new awareness, handing you a few tools that you can use along the way to kind of keep yourself on track and, you know, to help you really understand what it is, you know, where it is that you are, uh, where is it that you want to go? What's there? what's really getting in your way and how can you envision a path forward? Um, how is that going to feel, you know? And then like, I feel like coaching is, um, it's helping somebody walk towards a new possibility. That's a really simple, simple mm -hmm. way to say it. Um, yeah. but it's not, I mean, but getting there is not without really recognizing what got you here what keeps you stuck um, and what maybe prevents you from actually letting that new possibility happen for you. So. Right. Um, there's a lot. I find there's a lot of helping somebody else's nervous system actually acclimate to something new that occurs um, in the coaching relationship. Ooh, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, and sometimes kind of what, what got you to this place that you're at now is might be what's holding you back from getting to that new place and that new possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, so maybe like fast forwarding to like present day now, maybe just for the people listening, provide a brief overview of, of reboot and what your role is in the organization. Sure. So reboot is first and foremost, a coaching company. Um, we work with companies that are, you know, zero to 10 employees all the way to a thousand plus employees, um, companies who are bootstrapped, um, companies who are raising or in, you know, have raised multiple times companies who are even, um, on their way to IPO. So we really work with, um, a wide range of, you know, kind of the entrepreneurial set, um, we work with founders, we work with CEOs, we work with other parts of the executive team, and we also work with um, independent contributors if they have um, coaching budgets you know, within the organization. We work with uh, management teams um, and other folks you know, in management. So it, it's really company dependent on what 
what people come in with and what they need and, and where we can meet them. So. Okay. And what are some of the different services that you provide at Reboot? So a lot of our work is one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, but we also um, uh, have a really robust 360-degree review um, assessments program, um, which my colleague Courtney heads up right now. And um, those are fantastic for leaders or anyone to do. And it's a really wonderful way to jumpstart a coaching relationship. Um, my colleague Andy has... Um, for the longest time, kind of alongside my colleague Jim, uh, has led our team experiences efforts. And so uh, doing large organizational experiences with teams, as well as like anything from facilitated offsites, um, how to kind of bring in manager training to organizations, how to work with large distributed teams and uh, do ongoing training with them. And then also doing like deeper organizational work um, and culture work um, and kind of like organizational change management stuff. And so that's like a whole ball of wax, um, which again is super customized for, you know, clients and their needs. Um, but it's also a big part of, of what we do. We also have boot camps and workshops, which used to be in person and now they're virtual. Um, thanks to right. COVID. Um, and then we do, we have a podcast, which my partner Dan and I got off the ground at the very beginning of Reboot's inception in 2014. And since then, um, me and my colleagues have been producing content on a regular basis as well. And so we have a ton, a ton of free content out in the world. Um, I would say seven years worth at this point. Wow. Um, yeah. And so there's a part of me that's like, I think I need to organize this for people because <laughs> it's probably a really great resource. But so anyway, that's like kind of our whole host of um, offerings to the world. Interesting. That's a long time to be in the, in the podcast game. That's like almost like early days. I know we were just talking about that, actually. It's like when we started, there were like, so we were just kind of like, there were not that many. And now there are so many podcasts. It's amazing. It's almost a 10 times more or more. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's quite a terrain out there now. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of like the most common challenges or, or problems that um, like these leaders and leadership teams uh, are coming to your company with? That you see? In a really general sense, it's, um, I'll give you, I'll give you a sampler platter of what we hear. Um, a lot of it is interpersonal stuff. So relationship things, uh, whether it's co-founder dynamics, team dynamics, tricky employee dynamics. Um, that's a thing. Um, for leaders, um, a lot of CEOs come to us, uh, feeling like, alone, they feel alone in their role. Because when you're at the top, you don't always have someone to talk to right. who really knows your experience. Um, so they're feeling all kinds of things, including, you know, I mean, I, I was gonna say competency, but it's not just CEOs who struggle with competency. I think anyone at any strata of the organization is gonna be like, I just don't know that 
I can like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Um, a lot of folks come to us kind of at the edge, reaching the edge of I've been doing this this way for so long. I don't think it's working anymore, but it got me this far and I know I need to change. Um, so similar to what you were talking about before, which is what got you here won't always get you um, where you want to go. They come in kind of weary, just almost burnt out. And a lot of folks do come burnt out and they're just like, I can't keep doing it this way. Um, I can't keep working 14 plus hour days nonstop with no vacations and having anxiety attacks and nervous breakdowns. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and so, you know, we, we help them and like we kind of pick them up off the floor and, you know, help them find their core sense of self again. Um, so those are, those are not few and far between actually it's probably more common um a lot of folks are really coming to us now because they're almost coming preventatively they're like we're just getting started we want to do this right we don't want to we want to avoid as many pitfalls as we can and so those those inquiries are always um i don't know so heartwarming because it's like oh cool you know, people are really starting to really think about their work consciously and what's possible. And so um, we also get a lot of that. Right. And that kind of goes back to your passion earlier when you're talking about preventative health, but it's more preventative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the organization. Totally. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's how, you know, how can we consciously create our lives as individuals, you know, but how can we consciously create our organizations so that we feel safe. Our nervous systems feel safe. There's less tension, right? We know how to be with each other. We know how to communicate. We have skills. Um, we're supported in our roles. We're, we're encouraged to grow. We have the support we need to grow so that we can actually just show up and do the, our best work together. I mean, work is like, it's like the mattress thing, right? Like you're on your mattress a third of the third of your life. You need this should feel, this should feel okay. This should feel good and not like something you, that stresses you out, fills you full of tension, makes you anxious. You really don't want to go, but you have to, cause you need a paycheck. That's, that's like, that's when you know something's not right, you know? And so how do you create an organization that supports the human and supports the group of humans coming together around this mission in this vision so that everybody can say hey i'm showing up to do this good work and to do some of the best work of my life here and i also have a life that i can enjoy um, without the stress and tension right how can this, that be a harmonious experience yeah yeah i love that and um there's a phrase uh, that's repeated often on the reboot website that goes work can be the way in which we achieve our fullest self. Can maybe expand on that and like how we can use work uh, in that way. Um, so work can be a way in which we achieve our fullest self is um, it, I think it's an invitation for, for us to start viewing work differently. And and to actually use the content at work 
um, to do our work. And by that, I mean, you know, any organization is really a container for a lot of experiences, but we're really one of the consistent pieces, you know, not only in our lives, right? Like we're the main actor. We are the thing that is consistent in our life. Um, and so by being able to deal with what comes up at work in a way that isn't leaving our best self at the door and to be able to say, for example, um, I'm having this really hairy uh, moment with my colleague or my co-founder and it brings up the worst parts of me, right? Really bad conversations that I regret, really bad behaviors, right? That come out sideways, right? Like we can use those scenarios where our humanity is like, <laughs> like we're right there, right? Mm -hmm. We're showing up, we're having feelings. And instead of being, I'm going to revert to my old tactics. We can lean in and be like, what's possible here? What's coming up for me? What do I need to tend to? And how can we be better together? Um, and so in many ways, um, that line about work being a place for us to achieve our fullest self is, is this invitation for us to actually bring the possibility for self-actualization into our workplaces. This doesn't mean that we're navel-gazing all day. This means that we can still show up and do good work and execute accordingly. And we can also um, manage our own emotions. We can be aware of our own emotions. We can know how to regulate our own emotions. We can be with others who are upregulated and we can have enough wherewithal to keep ourselves regulated and not escalate something. But we could maybe step in and say, hey, I see that something's up for you. What might you need right now? Or what just happened? How can showing up that way inform our conversations and our relationships with people? How can we hold, make and hold commitments, right? Um, so that work gets done in a way that not only furthers the mission of the company, but creates trust amongst the team. Um, as leaders, you know, like a CEO in an organization, I think the invitation is, is really asking this big question, which Reboots asks forever, and Jerry, Jerry writes in his book, it's like, what kind of adult do I want to be? What kind of leader do I want to be? And what kind of company do I want to create? Um, and realizing too that as the leader, the, the tone for the culture kind of gets set at the top, especially at first, right? And so by a leader actually stepping in to that invitation to allow work um, to, to be a way in which they can become their fullest selves, self, they kind of open the doors for everyone else to do the same. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And um, is this, is this kind of tied to when you hear people talk about just being on the hamster wheel, like every day is not being able to break that cycle and just kind of goes into this vicious spiral downward of maybe going into burnout and all of that, but finding a way to break that, if that makes sense. 
In a way, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, mm. Because the hamster wheel is it's just going around and around and around. And until you get off um, and take a step back and create space in order to A, see what's going on and check in with yourself and be like, what might I need here? <laughs> and then like, what would I like? Do I need a sandwich? Do I need a nap? You know, do I want to jump back on the hamster wheel for five more minutes and get that one thing done? Um, you know, then you can choose accordingly. But without that, without taking a step back, without hitting pause for a second to be like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? What's going on for me? What's happening in the situation? What's happening around me? We're just spinning through, running old patterns, like old psychological patterns, doing the same behaviors and wearing ourselves out in various ways. Yeah. And what are some of the results um like that you've seen from like at rat reboot and like maybe some like testimonials you've gotten from perhaps like reluctant ceos or leaders at, at first but then through reboot coaching you know completely transformed them and how they lead the company and then they get the company experience you know much more success afterwards like do you have any of those like kinds of stories that you might be able to share or, or results um there are so many. Um, <laughs> there's so many too that like we haven't like collected, you know, officially like on our testimonial page. Um, partially because you know it's we don't really um, we're not super open about who we work with. We keep that fairly confidential unless like the client is open about it. And um, right. But you know, in a real kind of anonymized sense, um, you know you know, people, people come to us from so many avenues, right? Some come to us from one-on-one -on -one coaching and then we end up doing larger work in their organizations. And a lot of folks um, came to us too, like through the boot camps, and they would come to the boot camp and be like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be. And then they have this kind of heart opening experience at boot camp, and they go back and they're like, I want my whole company to be able to experience this or to have this language or this, you know, have this way of being in the world. And because um, it's really hard to have this like heart opening experience and then like be pushed back into your old life, right? So like the old container right. that you came from is, is just gonna, um, it's not gonna be as open to what you have just been through in the place that you've arrived at. And so going, the return is always hard. Um, but a lot of the CEOs would go back and then engage us, you know, um, for one-on-one -on -one coaching and then larger team experiences. Um, and they would see great change in the organizations. Um, sometimes even if it was just the CEO getting coaching, you know, they, by their, um, the way they've changed their way of being, the way they've changed um, how they've been thinking about things, that alone creates ripples through their organizations. And those ripples have, um, immediate and, and subtle long-term impacts, and they ultimately affect the bottom line. I mean, we see companies that have exponential growth. Um, we see, you know, other companies that have, you know, they still have maybe, you know, turbulent, turbulent growth, but they're, 
they're all in it. Um, you know, they're like the team is, is gelled so that, um, you know, everybody's along for the ride in a way. I think the best stories are, you know, the folks that, that have an experience, um, with reboot, whether it's at a boot camp or with their coach. I, I mean, right now I'm just thinking of some of the boot camp stories where people go back into their lives and they're, they're fundamentally different. Um, they're different leaders. They're different humans with their family. Um, those impacts to me are just as important, if not more important than like the companies that really take off, you know, from a financial perspective. Um, right. So, yeah, I don't know. But to hear, yeah, the stories, the stories are, um, they, they really keep us doing the work. And for us, it's proof that that this, that this does work. Um, but also that there is another way. And, you know, we've always said from the beginning at Reboot, you know, we don't necessarily want to work with, you know, the Fortune 500 or whatever companies. We want to work with the companies that might become the next Fortune 500, 150, whatever. Um, because they can make the biggest impact. And if you have a leader who takes this work seriously for themselves and for their executive team and for their management team and for their whole organization, that experience of being at that organization and working there is going to feel different than at a startup where, you know, the, the interpersonal stuff hasn't been maybe clarified or, or learned or, um, you know, it might be a little, um, dysfunctional and a little less fun in the dysfunction. Um, and what we've seen too is like, there's a certain kind of interpersonal dysfunction that does directly affect the bottom line. And a well-oiled organization has a very um, well-tended-to human component. Interesting. I would guess that it might be harder for like, I guess in a sense, working with like a huge global, like fortune 50 company, like whose culture has been so established for dozens and dozens of years. And they have so many, there's so much bureaucracy and established methods and processes that it might be tougher for that, I guess, transformation to reverberate across the whole entire organization versus more of these startups and high growth organizations that it sounds like you tend to work more with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, shifting gears here a little, um, I want to talk about your, your work with horses. So like, where does that fit into all of this? And like, like, what is it about horses that makes them like such great facilitators of Know, deep work and transformation for people? Um, one of the things that I think is so simple, but also maybe the most profound is that um, 
horses almost demand that you um, get out of your head and into your body. And for so many of us who have been on the hamster wheel, right, or uh, who have been stressed out for very long periods of time without much reprieve, that's hard. We're not always in, we're not always in that space. And yet to be with a horse requires that you actually awaken um, all of your like bodily operations from the neck down um, and to really awaken what is it to be a body with other bodies? What is that awareness between us? What is that awareness I have within me? How am I sensing my environment? Um, it's a, to me, it's like this thing that horses awaken can it's like they invite us to just step into it but they also in a way to work well with the horse you have to be in that space for yourself um horses don't really respond um kindly to structure and methods and um your way of thinking about something necessarily um they live entirely in the moment and entirely in their bodies and that is that's how they know their world. And that's like their core connection to their survival in the world. They're mammals, they're prey animals. So they're like highly attuned sensitivity to their environment. And when you're with them, um, it's like you start, you start this rewilding process in yourself. You know, you can, you start hearing the birds outside the arena or the hawk that just flew overhead, right? You hear like the flap of wings through the air. Um, you can feel the breeze on your face. You start to feel the unevenness of the ground beneath you. You start to like notice maybe space, more space in your body than you've been aware of for a long time. And you begin to feel like acutely aware of that, that you are with or near these 1200 pound beings who are also sensing you. Um, so I just said a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a big old ramble, but um, I think awareness is, is, is number one. Um, like who am I and what's my place here? And how do I know what my place is? Because when I work with, with uh, people in the herd, um, I do a little bit of a preamble. I let them, I give them some information about the culture that they're about to step into, right? Because when you're like finding yourself in a foreign country, it's kind of nice to know like some norms, some cultural norms. Right. Um, but then I invite them into the arena with the horses and, um, and I invite them to actually like find their horse body. And what is it? to awaken to being in a space that is not driven by your thoughts. What other parts of you are here? What other parts of you um, can help you be here in ways that you don't always access in your day-to-day? -day? Like intuition, instinct, body sensation, whatever it is. Interesting. So kind of, in a way, have them be try to be as attuned to themselves as the horses are. Yeah. Well said. Interesting. So what might like, I think the, the term on the Reba website is equine, equine. Is that how you pronounce it? Equine. 
Equine, got it. Okay. An equine uh, facilitated like coaching session look like, I don't know, like without giving away like, you know, the secret sauce and anything, but like what I'm trying to imagine like what that would like look like. Um, yeah, well, they look different for everyone because every human brings their own uh, way of being in the world um, into that arena and the horses organize around that field. And um, humans also do the same thing, but we don't see it necessarily as clearly. <laughs> um, but, you know, someone who walks in with poor boundaries, for example, that will likely be reflected in how the horses react to them. Um, their boundaries might be encroached upon and they might be actually called or asked in some form, or I might ask them eventually to say, what is it to assert a boundary? What does that feel like? Um, and then they get real time um, feedback. How was it? How did that audience of horses actually respond to my request or my new way of being in the space that actually asserts um, maybe my sovereign right to be here and like my need for this amount of space? And they get to test that, right? How effective was that? Did the horses get it? Did they stand back or did they blow right through my request? And what was happening for the human maybe in that moment? You know, did, were they really feeling it? Were they tentative? There's so much that happens like on a, on a human to human um, basis that every session is like so wildly different. Um, but they're fascinating to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and my job is as kind of, I really, I'm the co-facilitator in these moments is, is really to lift up what's happening and to kind of translate for the human. You know, like how, you know, this is the feedback you're getting in horse language. This means this, how did that feel in your body? Right. Um, what does that tell you? And then having them actually feel other ways of being in the arena, right? Which they then take out into their lives. But the beauty I think of working with horses is that um, it creates like this full body anchor and NLP, we would call this an anchor. It's a new feeling or it's, it's a feeling that, that is full bodied. It's, it's actually like, I'm experiencing a whole new way of doing this one thing. I, I am experience a, experiencing a new way of showing up um, in relationship to or I'm experiencing a new way to be with myself as I walk around this arena with these giant things that I'm terrified of, <laughs> um, which happens for some folks. And so it's, it's this, like your whole nervous system is like rewiring. Um, and it's, it's pretty fantastic to witness. And then to um, check in with people post session and be like, you know, what's happening? You know, what has happened? What have you noticed? And um, most people write back, actually, I don't even check in with them. And they're just like, Oh, my God, you'll never believe like, just had this experience at work. And I totally brought all my wisdom of being with the herd, you know, into my, my role as a teacher in the classroom. And in the moments where I get overwhelmed, I would ask myself, like, where, where is my right place in the herd right now? I had one client. Um, write that note to me and you know, it's it's amazing like to hear how this just having that somatic feeling that 
different somatic feeling. It allows people to actually take that and, and live with it and, and create more stronger like neural pathways um, and create change in their life. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that is fascinating. So I guess shifting gears here again, uh, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted Reboot? And like, how's your team had to adjust or pivot? So we were, um, some of our clients were affected, especially if they were in like the travel industries. Um, so we experienced it on that level, which was, you know, kind of hard. Some clients, I mean, some clients had to shut down some clients we just continued to work with pro bono just to be with them through the pandemic. Um, and then oddly, like, uh, as we've kind of seen this year, like other companies have just gone gangbusters. And so, you know, our clients have really seen a whole wide variety of experiences. Um, and we've, you know, been able to, you know, accommodate that we've actually been really fine. Um, we didn't have to change too much about our working styles because we've always been virtual. We've always had a, you know, a global set of um, clientele. So virtual has always been a part of how we work. Um, we did have to pivot our bootcamp model. So this year we started doing more virtual workshops and we did our first virtual bootcamp, which was, um, had just as much magic as the in-person ones, except for the, the magic that happens, you know, like, you know, sitting down and sharing a meal together, you know, that kind of conversational magic. Um, but every other part of the experience was really intact. So we were really happy for that, actually. Um, and it's been really, for me, it's been really great to see us do workshops, you know, in online, you know, and use that platform. So we've been able to try new things and see how they work. Awesome. And uh, has the pandemic maybe amplified some of the challenges that leaders face, um, like when they, when, they, when they have come to you during, during this time? Yeah. And, um, and it's different at every stage of the pandemic, right? Because at first we were like, okay, is this going to last for two months? <laughs> is this going to last for six months? Like, what right. are we in, right? Well, nobody really knew. And so, and everybody was forced to work from home. So the companies that weren't um, virtual or remote workplaces, they had to adjust. And then it became a matter of how do we stay connected as a team? How do we, um, how do we make sure that everybody is, uh, they have what they need, they're working well, they're getting stuff done. And so it, it, they really kind of had to buckle down in terms of, um, management training, um, communication, communication skills became huge. So there was kind of like that phase and, and a lot of clients too struggled with, um, funding rounds, right? They were either delayed, um, changed, you know, funding was decreased. Um, some folks had term sheets that kind of just evaporated, especially at first, I think later, you know, uh, the term sheets came back. Uh, they may have been different, but they came back. So, you know, the funding landscape was very different for a lot of folks. Um, 
as well as managing just the stress. Like for the leaders, it was managing the stress of how, what do I say? How do I tell the team what's going on without freaking them out? And like, there was, there right. was just a lot for the, I think each individual leader and all the stress that they were holding because they're tending to their employees. They're tending to the company at large. They may have been tending to like a funding round. Right. So like there's all these things that needed to be adjusted internally. How do we keep this ship going um, and keep the crew sane? Those were some of the big questions. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, like entrepreneurs and founder CEOs, it's deal with a lot of uncertainty as it is, but the pandemic and added on some, whole new level of uncharted waters that they had to navigate through. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And now what they were, what everybody's experiencing is um, I would call it COVID fatigue. And I think this has been around for much longer, but I think now it's like much more acute um, and everybody, at least the clients that I talk to, like they're exhausted. And so there's that whole layer, like how do we, how do we keep the ship going and how do we tend to the crew that's exhausted? So more uncharted waters there, but you know, it's, I mean, this year has been a thing. It has been quite a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and on that, um, getting into these last handful of questions here. You know, one thing that many working professionals encounter throughout their career is burnout. Mm-hmm. What are some like strategies that you've seen that can be really effective in Uh, helping to prevent burnout? Yeah, I love this question. So a lot of people will say self-care and I am a hundred percent about self-care. And I think the important part about self-care is really becoming attuned to yourself. What do I need when I'm at my best and who am I when I'm at my worst and what do I need to maintain like myself in a way that I can show up resourced. I might not be my best human on every day, but I can be a resourced human on every day. Does that mean I need adequate sleep, adequate hydration, adequate food, adequate space and time for just me, um, adequate exercise, adequate creative time or intellectual time or whatever time? as well as connective social time, right? And this is, I mean, if you think about all the things I've just named, for any single person, you think, okay, they might have enough time in the day to do that and work and sleep. But you think of someone with a family and you're like, oh my gosh, it's it's a lot. Um, And so knowing really what we need on a daily basis is important. Um, And knowing what doesn't work for us and isn't serving us is also important. And so on a similar vein, boundaries become very important, I think. And it's really easy for certain individuals and certain personalities to take on responsibilities that aren't necessarily theirs to take on, to take on work that isn't theirs to do, to say yes to things that they don't really want to say yes to, um, you know, to kind of bow in to things that they feel obligated to do, but they have absolutely zero interest or desire to do, or it doesn't fill them up with any sort of good feeling. And so on, a, on like this core individual basis, once you get your basic needs met, right, hydration, sleep, food, exercise, really becoming clear about what's yours and what's not yours is really important. 
because then you know what to push back on and, and what ultimately then can create more space for more of you. And burnout really is, I think it's, it's a space where we become so disconnected from our, ourselves or our true selves that we can't run that way anymore. Like we can't operate um, as that false self any longer. And so right next to boundaries, I would, I would also say, and then start doing some real inner work around what makes me show up this way? What drives me to like run that hard and that fast to the point of burnout? Cause it clearly isn't working. Right. And so really right. starting to excavate and learn more about why we do what we do to get us in these places. Um, while also I think asking these questions, what brings us alive and where have we lost connection with that? Um, I know there's this old saying, I think Gabriel Roth, who does this form of, of dance, uh, rhythmic dance, she said like, back in the day, if you brought a uh, depressed person to, um, depressed or burnt out person to a shaman, they would say, when, when have you stopped singing? When have you stopped dancing? When have you stopped playing? When have you stopped uh, creating, you know? Like when, how have we disconnected ourselves from like these other vital ways of being human all for the sake of work. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, burnout also shows up. I mean, look at our frontline workers, right? Frontline workers, uh, first responders, it shows up when we put ourselves to the side and we're putting other people in front of us. And that's when burnout really starts to happen because we are over here to the side. But the moment we start putting ourselves where we should be, like we are, we are the star of our show. We're the leader of our life. We have needs, we have desires, we have feelings. We need tending to. Um, when we start realizing the importance of that piece, we can actually show up in the world so much better for everyone else and our work and what we're doing in the world and be of much better service. Yeah. Yeah, I loved all of that. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. The first thing that comes to my head is like, uh, I'll just be like, Chase, I just, I just stumbled upon like millions of dollars. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> you should that's see awesome. it. That's awesome. That's such an awesome. honest answer too. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I thought about that. I've been thinking about that one while I've been cleaning the barn this week. And I'm like, I don't even know what I would say. But man, if I stumbled upon a stack of cash, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I hope more of the same. More of the same, if not this, like, amplified. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what does your daily routine look like? Uh, my daily routine has changed since we moved out to the farm. So um, I have, I wake up around six to six thirty, and I'll check my phone to see if there are any emergencies from clients that I need to tend to. And I go outside and I take care of the horses. So I feed the horses, clean the barn, get them outside for the day. Um, 
I come back in, I feed myself, and sometimes I'll sit down and I'll have some of my um, European clients I'll do in the morning. So I'll, I'll maybe have a client session in the morning. Um, and then I'll actually, my day is pretty open um, in the mornings for horsing around, I call it. And so I have three horses right now and um, any handful of them needs to be exercised on any given day. And so I'll ride anywhere from one to three horses. Um, and then I will kind of put the horses where they need to be in the afternoon, depending on the season and um, come inside and sit down and sit with clients um, for three hours. And then um, go out and feed the horses again and then feed myself and wrap up a few things from the day um, after connecting with my partner and then um, doing night check for the horses <laughs> and going to bed and doing it all over again. And that's yeah. my life these days. I've, yeah. I've earned my sleep by the time I've hit the pillow. I'll put it that way. Right. A lot of work yeah. with the horses. Is that what it sounds yeah. like? Yeah. If you looked at my calendar, I think you'd, it would look like I have a full-time horse job and like coaching is a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Just because the amount of time they take, but yeah. 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 So as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? My driving force. Um, I'm sure there are so many unconscious driving forces that, um, that would be a whole other podcast to dive into. But um, the aspirational driving force has been this, it's been this quest to live life like deeply connected to my heart, I say. And for me, that is really recognizing that, um, you know, this body, this human experience is, is the vehicle through which my soul gets to experience this life and and what does it mean to be a soul in a body having this very human experience and i mean that's i don't know it's it, that awareness or that sensibility i think is like in my face all the time you know in a good way but like it, it's the one thing that it doesn't really leave you know, it's kind of the lens that I um, experience life through. Interesting. Okay. And then uh, lastly here, before I wrap up, what parting words of wisdom would you like to leave the maybe working professional listening around maintaining their well-being as we continue through this pandemic and hopefully uh, what it seems like as we exit out of it? Yeah. Um my mentor, Carl, had said these words to me a few years ago. And he said, your well-being is, is your greatest purpose in life. And I may have butchered that, so I apologize, Carl. But um, the essence is, you know, your well-being and how you are is is of core importance. And it's also, as my partner called it, has also echoed in the past, like it's also the greatest gift you can give to anyone. Um, 
So my advice would be to trust that and um, really attune to what that means for you. You know, what is your well-being? Um, what does it require? What does it desire? What do you need right now? What shifts can you make to get there? Yeah, because even though the pandemic is rough, if we lose our connection with ourselves, um, pandemic or not, if we lose our connection with ourselves, we, we kind of lose, we get lost so much easier, right? We're more prone right. to burnout. We're more prone to finding ourselves washed up on some shore going, how did I get here? <laughs> like, where am I? Yeah. I think that's the purpose of all of this, all this humanity, you know, this gift of a life that we get, um, doesn't, isn't meant to be spent, um, in the office or stressed out 16 hours a day in front of your glowing rectangle. But what, what do you have in your bones in your cells in your, in your blood vessels, you know, what's pulsing through you and, um, what's alive right now. I don't know. I just, I think that connection to self is so important and so critical at any moment in life, but especially now during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about when you're, I guess, true to yourself and your well-being is your well-being is good, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, you're more able to show up better for others too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Allie. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. So, so thanks again. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Where can people, yeah. Where can people go to find you online? Um, Reboot.io is probably the best. Um, That's all things reboot in one place. Um, Along with all of our free content. Um, and then on Instagram, I am, um, my horse tendency. That's kind of my personal page. So you can meet all the horses. And, um, we also, I started an Instagram account for the farm, which is deep peace farm, um, which actually is kind of a, um, lovely place to arrive at and spend some time. Cause I've, I've created it so that there's, this um, hopefully harmonious balance of text and images um, that are um, inviting of, you know, personal reflection and um, some deeper heart resonance. So I've kind of created that as a, as a gift for the souls that happen to land on that account on Instagram. So. Oh, interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time.